Abundance of love, abundance of grace. Now to that cross, you took my place. Oh God, you paid my ransom. My ransom. Abundant Life Christian Fellowship Church. Loving God, loving people. Now, here's Pastor Scott. In Esther chapter 1, verse 1, the Bible says, These events happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. At that time, Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal throne at the fortress of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. He invited all the military officers of Persia and Media, as well as the princes and nobles of the provinces. The celebration lasted 180 days, a tremendous display of the opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. I want to speak to you this morning from a study of this book, and a sermon titled Providence. Say Providence. Now say not Rhode Island. Pray with me. God, thank you for your love. Thank you for your goodness, God. I thank you for life. And Father, I pray today that you'd strengthen my body to say the things that you'd have me to say, God. I pray that you'd give us wisdom today. Give us knowledge. Give us understanding. Teach us what you'd have us to know. Is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So I told you the book of the month for January has been Esther and Esther is an extremely, it's, it's a, a double, triple, or quadruple unique book because it's got certain things going on for it that almost no other Bible book has going on for it. There's only two books in the Bible that are named after a woman. This and what? Ruth. Now, Ruth wrote which one of those two books? Neither one. Ruth didn't write a book, Esther didn't write a book, but they were named after them as the principal character. And so Esther is unique in that it's one of the only two books in the Bible that were named after women. And it's also unique because it's one of only two books in the Bible that does not mention the name of God one time. Doesn't talk about God, doesn't doesn't, uh, call God by name, but it does show forth God's providence. The theme of the book is clearly seen through the providence of God. And I told you I want to preach to you about providence. Providence is one of those Bible words that we don't use a lot in our day-to-day conversation. But providence literally means to provide for in advance. Do you get that? To provide for in advance. And before we leave here today, I hope that each one of you will see the providence of God In the events of your own life. God has provided for each one of our lives. Each and every step of our way to get us to where we are. And we're going to see the providing hand of God in today's lesson. As I see this thing play out like a movie. Now y'all know if I was casting for a movie. I I needed to be you know Old Testament style. So back in the days of barbarians and gladiators. And so you know my lead character in the movies when I play them out on Abundant Life Bible Cinema is usually who? Anybody know? Gerard Butler. 
Who can't nobody do it like Gerard Butler? Have y'all seen the movie? Anybody seen the movie 300? The movie 300 actually is a real historical account, factual, down to the names, down to the dates, down to how the battle, battle went, and even including the hunchback that betrayed King Leonidas and those men that said, we are Sparta, and how all that went down. It's about this king, Xerxes, and his dominance of the known world at that time. So I got Gerard Butler in my mind. I don't really have a cast for the rest of these people because the rest of them are interchangeable because, you know, Gerard Butler is the key figure in my movie. But anyway, I'm going to give you some names. We're going to look at six characters. I don't think I can get past the first six characters in the book that I want to talk to you about this morning, but we're going to talk about King Xerxes. Now, that's a weird name. I don't know why we pronounce X with a Z. I don't know why we pronounce knife, knife. I don't know how we pronounce the word read and read, lead and lead. I don't, the English language is weird all by itself, but this name is Xerxes. Now, Xerxes is the Greek pronunciation of the Hebrew name Ahasuerus. So if you read in the book of Esther, you're going to see sometimes this guy is called Xerxes, and sometimes he's called Ahasuerus. And it's the same guy with two different names. One's the Greek name, and one is the Hebrew name. But he's, going, he's a very principal character in the book. And we just read in our opening text verses about him and this party he threw. Look at verse 4 of our opening text. The first three verses talk about how Xerxes reigns over uh, the whole earth from India to Ethiopia. He had 127 different provinces that... Uh, reported to him. He's throwing this massive party. There's speculation about why he's throwing this party. Well, he's just been wore out by two made-for-TV movies, one called 300, which is where uh, King Leonidas and 300 Spartans withstood 150,000 Persians in, uh, in a little narrow 20-yard wide path called the Hot Gates. Could you imagine trying to drive 150,000 people across a desert to anywhere? But you can't march them all right down the middle of this aisle. So King Leonidas and these Spartans defend this area, and they wear Xerxes and his men out. Then the second movie, and I don't even remember what the name of that second movie was, but it was a battle taking place on the water. It was the, the sequel to the movie 300, a different guy played the lead role. But the Greeks destroy the Persian fleet, the largest navy, the largest army in the world, and they are facing these setbacks after setbacks. And many historians say that this massive party was going on to try to bring unity and uplift morale for some recent set, morale for, from some recent setbacks. But the party lasted how long? Wow. I mean, you know, if the party goes on till the sun comes up, that, that, that's, that's a lot. If it carries on through a whole weekend, that, that's, that's a throwdown. If it lasts all spring break for like two weeks, then that's called the police. But this is a sick every day for six months. They had a massive, drunken, crazy, off-the-chain, money-thrown-everywhere throwdown party. So much so, if you read 
Esther, you'll find out that the king lifted all of the restrictions of how much food and drink people could get, and it was open bar 24-7 for 180 days. How many of y'all believe some people got drunk? Some, they, they did, but Xerxes was, as many dictators are, ego-driven. And he wanted the world to know that even though he hadn't won every battle, nobody could throw a party like him and nobody was as wealthy as him. And it says this was a tremendous display of the opulent wealth of Xerxes' empire and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. So first character we've got is this king named Xerxes. The second character we come to in today's story is Vashti. V-A-S-H-T-I, Vashti. And Vashti was who in this book? The queen. She was the gorgeous queen. She was Xerxes' queen and 180-day parties going on. Dude has got a prince from 127 different community come. All the military officers, all the royals, all the nobles are there. They're you know, the higher up you are, the closer you're sitting to the king. And he's got all his cronies up next to him, and they're all blind drunk. And he decides in his blind drunkenness, tells one of his servants, hey, go get the queen. Tell her to throw that crown on her head and come out here and let me parade her around in front of my drunk buddy so they can see how fine she is. How many of y'all think women just love that type of uh, exposure? And uh, being objectified in that level. All women like, I just don't believe America objectifies women so much. Until you've been drug out in front of a bunch of drunk folk just to see how hot you are. This is what the king said to do. Now, Vashti did something that was unheard of in that day and time. And she said no. Now, I mean... I guess if you want to take a stand that's going to kill you, then take a stand that's going to kill you because everyone in that day and age knew that if you said no to the king, there were going to be massive consequences. So Vashti is told to come out. She says she's not going to do it. I'm just going to paraphrase a bunch of this to, to get to the end so we don't have to stay here all day long. But it makes the king furious. How is this woman going? She is just one of thousands of people that he's got in his harem and she's wearing the crown at his request and so he's like man i'm done with this woman i i am gonna have to put my foot down so he calls his counselors and says what should i do to her and these dudes decided we got to root feminism out at its core we got to stop this before it gets too wide open and if you read the text you'll find out they said we got to banish her so she'll learn to shut up, or every woman in all 127 providences will start telling their men what to do, and we can't have that. Fast forward thousands of years later, we got America. So... They decided to hush all women, changed the whole world. This woman changed the whole world because up in that, until that time, the, the Persian culture was wide open. They let pretty much anything go. They, they, were, they were very free thinkers. I mean, they had nude wrestling with women, mud wrestling. They had lots of women in positions of power. They, they were advanced, and, and this set them back because 
they passed several laws during uh, Vashti's rebellion and said not only will this teach women to shut up everywhere, but now they can't talk in their native tongue anymore, and every house has to speak in the language of the man. So she creates a lot of drama by saying no, but, you know, she took a stand, and it cost her. Point number one, sometimes you got to take a stand. Point number two, it's probably going to cost you. So when you take a stand, make sure that it's a battle worth fighting for. In life, you are going to have some people ask you to do some things that you don't want to do. In life, you're going to be presented with some, some options that don't, you don't see a good choice to be made. But you've got to decide if it's a battle worth dying for. Pick your battles wisely. She picked her battle here, and it cost her everything that she had, and she's off our movie. Then this next guy comes in named Haman. Now, Haman don't even sound like a good dude, and he's not. Haman is a, one of the leftover people from a battle that God's people fought against King Agag. Haman, Agag doesn't even sound like a good dude either. He's not. Haman was an Amalekite, sworn enemy of the Jewish people. So he's a little sinister dude. He, he's that Weasley-looking guy in the movie that, that's next to the king. He's second in command to the king, and, but he's, he's always plotting out for his own deal. So he's an enemy of God's people, the Jews. And then the next character in our movie is Esther. The name of the book is Esther. Now, everybody needs to learn something when you come to church. So Esther's name means star. So the star of our movie would have to be who? All right, that's what her name means. Her, her, her full name was Hadassah, but the Hebrew name for her was Esther. And her name means she was beautiful. She was orphaned as a child, and she was taken in by her older cousin, our next character, Mordecai. Mordecai is an older dude Way more grown than Esther. So much, they were cousins, but he was so much older than her that when her parents died and left her orphan, he adopted her. And so he's acting uh, father and cousin all at the same time, which is kind of similar to what happened in my life. Some of y'all have heard about my brother who died at 27 in a, in, a, in a motorcycle accident. He actually, we adopted him. He was my stepfather's nephew. And when his parents split up, they gave, were going to give this baby, one-year-old baby, to the state. So my stepfather was uncle and dad at the same time. Mordecai, similar situation. He adopts his younger cousin. So Mordecai is acting father and older cousin to Esther. Now, these are Jews who are living in Persia. They have been displaced the city has been overthrown. The temple has been torn down, built back up. This is during the time the movie 300 was made. This is right before Nehemiah returns back to rebuild the temple when he hears that Jerusalem is torn down and the wall is torn down. All this is going on near that same time frame. And Mordecai, to get to the end of this quick, he is a Jew who became a palace official. Kind of a different kind of thing. Half into slavery, half into 
coming up in a different culture, but he's living outside his comfort zone. But because he's a man of character, hard work, and doing things the right way, God exalts him, elevates him, and he was a palace official in Xerxes, King Xerxes' palace. If you read the first few chapters of the book, you'll find out early in the story that Mordecai overhears a plot by two of the guards, they're going to kill Xerxes. Now, you got to, I mean, you really got to be out there to be part of a regime like that. And some countries still go that way. If you're the king, you're only the king until your lead henchman knocks you off, and then he's the king. Overthrows, coups, this is how all this is going down. These two guys were going to kill Xerxes. Mordecai overhears overhears the plot. Tells it, foils the plot, Xerxes stays alive. Funny thing about it is Mordecai, do you know what the king gave Mordecai for for telling him about this, for stopping the assassination attempt on his life? Nothing. Point number two, you can be in the right place at the right time, do the right thing for the right reason, and not get recognized for it. And if Mordecai was like the average church member at this point in our movie, he'd just quit and go to a different church. He saved the king's life. This movie would be over if it wasn't for Mordecai. The king just forgets about it and goes on about his business. It comes around later in the story. You find out king can't sleep one night. So he's like, what's the most boring thing I could listen to? Bring out the history of the book of Kings and read me all the all the triumphs of my life. And while they were reading the book of history to Xerxes one night because he couldn't sleep, they read the part about Mordecai foiling the assassination on his life. So Mordecai gets promoted by the king, and his downfall was part of his setup. I'm not going to be real preachy and throw my voice out today because I got something going on in the back of my throat. But so many times we don't recognize the providence of God. See, there's, there's two ways to look at all these events. Events can be coincidence. This happened and that happened and the other thing happened. It looked like they were intertwined, but maybe they were, maybe they're not. That's how lost people think. Christians don't believe in coincidence. Christians believe in providence. Providence is the, the provision of God throughout the whole deal. Mordecai could have given up and said, man, I did something great. I didn't get rewarded for it. But because he stuck it out, eventually he got his come up. Some of y'all have been doing the right thing for a long time and you're mad because you haven't come up. Some of y'all have been doing the right thing for a long time and you've seen other people get promoted above you, favored beyond you, and you don't understand why. When it comes to God's providence, guess who's in charge? God. Do the right thing for the right reason and leave the results up to God. There's a, the last character I'll give you and then we'll get out of here is this Heggy. Heggy is the keeper of the women. Okay, so Vashti shows herself, won't do what the king tells her to do, won't come parade around in front of his drunk buddies. So he's like, she ain't the queen no more. Take the crown off her head. And he says, what should we do? The Xerxes counselors say, let's have a contest. Let's bring all the hot chicks in the whole world before you, and we'll let you pick one of them. And so a four-year beauty contest kickstarts at this point. 
between the time Xerxes deposes Vashti and he puts the crown on Esther's head, four years, lots of drinking and lots of overnight stays with women happen in the meantime. And this dude, Hagee, his job is to oversee the harem. What a horrible job. Could you imagine? You put about 17,000 women in a palace fighting to see who's going to be the next queen. You're the dude trying to keep them from clawing each other's eyes out. That's this guy's job. Now, let's pick up and and look through a couple of verses to get to my point this morning. In Esther 2, chapter 2, verse 8, the Bible says, As a result of the king's decree, Esther, along with many other young women, was brought to the king's harem at the fortress of Susa and placed in Haggai's care. So here is the beginning of the search uh, called Persia's Got Talent. And in this movie, they got all the hottest women from Persia coming and they put them in this harem. Now, man, I'm going to tell you, there is a, some women take a long time to get ready. But these people took it to a whole different level. You know, if you're, if you're a woman, you're going on a really important date, prom, a wedding. You take all day to get made up, you know, get your hair and your makeup done right. You run late. These people took, guess how long it took these women to get ready? Twelve months. Twelve months they were under Hagee's care. He had to keep these women in the harem for 12 months to get them ready for, are you ready for this? One night with the king. So when I say Persia's got talent, somebody better had talent or nobody was getting the crown. Verse 9, Hagee was impressed with Esther and treated her kindly. He quickly ordered a special menu for her and provided her with beauty treatments. He also assigned her seven maids specially chosen from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Esther hadn't done a whole lot yet in the movie. She hadn't done a whole lot in the story yet. She's an orphan, raised by her cousin, living in a foreign land, just trying to come up and do the best that she can. Mordecai puts her into the Persia's Got Talent contest. The keeper of the women is impressed with Esther and treated her kindly. Now, Heggy has no relationship to Esther. They're not the same race of people. They're not the same religious sect. They have no connection to each other at all. But the Bible says that when your ways please the Lord, he'll give you favor with God and people. God wants to give you favor not just with God and the people of God, but God wants to give you favor in all of your surrounding events. And so Esther gets favor with the keeper of the harem, and he's like, man, we got to move you up into rotation, girl. We, we can't have you sliding all the way down to 17,000 places. This is a four-year contest. And so he gets her a better menu. He gives her better beauty treatments. And he gives her seven maids specially chosen from the king's palace and puts her in the best part of the harem. Now, she doesn't, he doesn't want to send her in first, but he doesn't want to send her in last. So he's grooming her for the right time and the right place. What's my point? God's way is always about timing. And if you get in the way of God's plan, 
you're going to wreck the timing. And when you wreck the timing, you alter the outcome. And when you alter the outcome, you don't come up when you should have come up. You go down when you should have came up. It, how do you know if you're messing with the outcome? How do you know if, if you're messing with the timing? Because if you are not content where you are right now, you are probably messing with God's timing in your life. God's always in control. This is what the providence of God means. Uh, one theologian said that providence is literally God's hand in the glove of every historical event in your life. You see the glove moving. You don't see the hand, but it's the hand moving the glove. God is the one that is moving history. And God has got this young lady positioned in the right place. She's not where she wants to be. She's not where it looks like anything good is going to happen to her. She's just one of thousands. They got one time to be with the king, and they were never allowed to go back to the king unless he specifically asked for her by name. He's drunk. How's he going to remember all them names? Hadassah. Esther, what's your name? How many names you got? And so this is where Esther is. God gives her favor with this dude. See, Esther is getting moved into position to do what God wants done. Those of you who know the story, you know how it turns out. But not only is Esther getting moved into position to be used for God's glory, this dude is being moved into position to be used for God's glory. Mordecai has been put into position to be used for God's glory. And the Bible says that God even puts evil people in their position for his purpose. So Haman, the Amalekite, is in his position for God's purpose. In, in chapter 2, verse 12, the Bible says, Before each woman was taken to the king's bed, she was given the prescribed 12 months of beauty treatments. Six months with oil of myrrh, followed by six months with special perfumes and ointments. I don't know what she smelled like when she rolled in there, but she didn't, she didn't smell like she had been working in the field, I can tell you that. They are soaking this woman in oil for six months, softening her up, getting her prepared, trying to get her to the best spot. Now, here's the reality. Most of us have never worked hard. Now, this is every day beauty treatments every day for 12 months. Most of us have never worked hard at anything every day for 12 months for anything because we want instant gratification. We, we want to fast track everything. We want what we want and we want it now. We need to learn that God's way involves process. God's way always involves process. Between every promise and a promised land is a process. And it's usually a difficult process. And it usually gets people sidetracked. And if you don't focus on the truth that says, I know God is in charge of my process, you're going to get discouraged in your process. Some people are frustrated where they are. I, I've been there a lot lately over the last six years. My body has hurt every minute of the day for the last six years since I dropped that motorcycle on my back. And I have been in chronic pain for six years. Years and sometimes I've just I've just told God I'm sick and tired of feeling the way I feel. But here's the reality: this is my journey, and God has a purpose for my journey. All pain has a purpose, and you need to understand that your pain has a purpose. 
soaking in oil for six months, I mean, I guess it's better than working in a field, but I mean, that, that, that's a lot of, of being done over every day for six months for, for one night with the king. In verse 16, it says, Esther was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace early winter of the seventh year of his reign. Three years in, Persia got talent, called her number. Verse 17 said, and the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. Now, in my mind, I'm thinking, all right, years go by, 365 days in a year. That's 1,000 women in three years. How are you going to, how's one really going to stand out that much to the next? And some of y'all are thinking, well, if it was me, you'd know. <laughs> well, I guess Esther had talent. And the king loved her more than any of the other young women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her king instead of Vashti. Now, declared her queen instead of There had been no queen for four years till she finally gets her time. What if you had to work every day, month after month, week after week, year after year, and never see anything good coming from your effort, how long could you hang in there? If you don't believe that God is in control, you're going to get frustrated with your journey. If you don't believe that there's a purpose for your pain and a purpose for your journey, you're going to get frustrated with it. But God is setting each one of these people in place for his purpose, and God has set each one of us in place for his purpose. Most people would like to be able to see down the road what their big thing's going to be. Well, how's it going to turn out for me? I, I, I want to see. I want to skip down to the end of my movie and see what happens. Uh, many theologians have said the reason why God doesn't give us the long-range picture is because it would scare too many people away and they'd quit serving him. You have no idea what you still have yet to go through to be the man, the woman that God wants you to be. We have no idea what we yet have to endure to get to the place that we ultimately were designed to be. But remember what I told you so many times about Jesus. Jesus was in preparation for 30 years to do three years ministry to accomplish three hours of purpose. So we need to be content. Say content. We need to learn how to chill. We need to learn how to exist in the moment. We need to learn how to embrace our place and stop complaining. Well, when am I going to get my raise? When am I going to get to live in a better house? When am I going to get a decent car? When, when are people going to start? All that complaining is hindering your ability to get past your process and get to the place of your destiny. So this beauty contest goes on four years. In the end, Xerxes chooses Esther. Look in Esther 3.1. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, the son of Hamathda, the Agagite, over all other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by, for the king had commanded. But Mordecai refused to bow or show him respect. All right, so here we come to Haman's role in the movie. I told you he's a Weasley little character. He's, he's, the, he's the villain. He, he's, he's the bad guy. 
and he works his way to being second in command. And he connives his way into being powerful, and everybody's supposed to bow down when this guy walks by or rides by, but Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. Now, it wasn't because Mordecai was stiff-necked and rebellious. It wasn't because Mordecai was a man just like he's a man, and who does he think he is? Mordecai was following God's law that you don't bow down to human beings. You bow down only to God. And so Mordecai is doing what he's doing out of spiritual conviction. And guess what? His spiritual conviction ended up costing him. His spiritual conviction ended up getting him in trouble. His spiritual conviction ended up making his life more difficult. I wonder how long you'd hold to your spiritual conviction if life got harder for you based on you trying to do the right thing. See, most of us just want it easy. Most people want the, the, the road of the, the course of least resistance. But Mordecai was a man of courage. Mordecai was a man of conviction. And he knew that God had said, you don't bow to man, you bow to God. So Haman gets mad. Haman launches a plot. Haman goes to the king, lies on Mordecai and says there's a group of people out here called the Jews, and they hate you, king, and they don't keep your laws, and they all need to be killed. Well, that's not true. They didn't, they didn't hate Xerxes, and they kept most of the law. Mordecai just wasn't going to bow down to Haman. Haman got upset. He goes, and he goes in hate against the Christian character in this movie. That's my next point. If you stand for your convictions, your Holy Ghost belief system, there are going to be people that hate you. Jesus said, marvel not if the world hates you. They hated me first. Jesus went further in saying, beware if all men speak well of you. If everybody thinks you're, you're the bee's knees, if everybody thinks that you're all that in a bag of chips, you're not standing on anything. Because as soon as you stand up for your conviction, somebody's going to get mad at you. Somebody's going to talk trash about you. Somebody's going to lie on you behind your back. So Haman the horrible goes behind Mordecai the hero's back, tells the king, look, these Jews are no good. We need to kill all of them, but we need to finish them off. And the king's like, whatever, go do it. You know, if, if, if they're not doing what they're supposed to do, kill off all of them. So Haman gets the king's signet ring, posts all these letters in all 127 cities, provinces across the globe and tells them all, we're killing every Jew. We're going to wipe them off the face of the earth, set a date for it. And when Mordecai hears this, Mordecai goes into mourning, puts burlap sack on, throws dust on his head. Esther comes out to talk to him because the book tells us every day Mordecai would come by to get in Esther's ear, find out what's going on up in there. Let me tell you what's going on out here in the street. And they had that type of conversation going on. Esther doesn't know about Haman's plot. Mordecai's in deep mourning. Esther asks why. And Mordecai says, because your husband just agreed to Haman the horrible's terms to kill off all of us. And that includes you. Ah. Well, now our heroine, is not, that's not a street drug, heron. That's uh, the, the female hero. 
You know that heron. You ghetto if you say heron. But anyway, Esther is now put in the crossfires of being found out. Because here's the deal. She never told anybody. She didn't tell Heggy, the keeper of the women. She didn't tell him she was Jewish because that wasn't going to benefit her. You know, sometimes your enemy don't need to know everything about you. Sometimes the people you tell your dream to will be the ones that sell you into slavery and try to kill you in a pit, steal your coat of many colors. Everybody's not ready to hear your dream. The Bible says a prudent man conceals knowledge, but the mouth of a fool tells it all. Sometimes you ought to hold some stuff. So Esther had been holding this the whole time. Mordecai told her, don't you tell them people you're Jewish because they're going to hate on us. They're going to know that we follow the one true God. But now it's come down to this place where... Esther has got to make a choice because Mordecai tells her, you need to go tell the king to scratch that plan. And you let him know, you're a Jew just like I'm a Jew, and he can't be killing us off. And she, and she tells her uncle, stepfather, adopted dad, I can't do that. The king hasn't, she says, the king hasn't called for me in over 30 days. You weren't allowed just to walk into the king's court in those days. If you walked into his presence without being called, they just killed you. There was only one way that they didn't instantly kill you if the king, because he's sitting there with his gold scepter in his hand, if he holds the gold scepter out to you, that means to the guards, don't kill her, I'll talk to her. So she's got this, this thought in her mind, man, if I do what you tell me to do, unk or cousin, that this, this, he might just kill me off the rip. I might not even get my speech out about what's going on. The movie could end right here. But look what Mordecai tells her in Esther 4.13. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. But you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. And that's the big quote that people pull out of Esther. That's usually the one verse people preach out of Esther for such a time as this. God has you where he has you for such a time as this. That's not necessarily what it says. It says maybe God has you where he has you for such a time as this. You don't know why you're where you are, but it may very well be, and history proves out that she was put in that place for this very purpose. She didn't know what that was. So here's what I want you to understand today. You don't have to know everything that's going on in your progress, in your process, in your journey, or in your pain. But you do need to believe, if you're a child of God, that God knows. He knows all about your struggle. He knows all about your pain. He's the hand in the glove that's moving history. And Mordecai tells her, you think you're going to be protected? Because you're up there sleeping in the king's palace. When they kill all the Jews, they're going to kill you too. And this is what Mordecai, the great man of faith, the hero in the story, he says, God's going to deliver us one way or the other. See, he had that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faith. He had that Hebrew faith. He had that Hebrew faith like they told Nebuchadnezzar. When Nebuchadnezzar said, well, I'm going to kill y'all in the fiery furnace. They said, oh, we're not scared of you. They said, you can throw us in this furnace, but our God is going to deliver us one way or the other. He's going to deliver us in this fire, or he's going to deliver us from this fire. But either way, deliverance is coming, and that needs to be the mindset of every believer. God is going to deliver me. 
eventually one day my back's not going to hurt again because either my back's going to get better or I'm going to die with a hurting back and wake up healthy in heaven. So you got to understand that one way or the other, the story ends good for the people on God's side. And this is what Mordecai is trying to remind Esther. Don't get out there twisting and doing your own thing. And so there's a message to each one of us. Don't ever abandon God's purpose or God's people for your convenience. When you abandon God's purpose and God's people for your convenience, you end up in trouble. They get delivered and you don't. Stay with the herd. Stay with the pack. Stay with the people of God. Stay involved in what God is doing. So all these things are adding up. All these people are put in place, and and it could look like coincidence, but it's not. It's all part of a divine plan that we call providence. Story goes on. I'm not going to go through the next six chapters, but Haman gets mad. He's so frustrated with Mordecai, he wants to kill him. He puts a 75-foot-tall sharpened pole out in front of his house, says, I'm going to hang him off this pole. I'm going to impale him. How do you lift someone 75 feet in the air to impale them on a pole? Anyway, so his plan backfires. The king gets reminded that Mordecai was the one that helped him out years ago for the assassination attempt. He said, we need to do something good for Mordecai. And Haman gets all tricked up and dies on the pole he wanted to kill his enemies on. So fast forward to where we're at. All that evil people are plotting on you. The Bible says it's going to come back on them and it's not going to get to you if you stay with God. The Bible says it's like the person that tried to roll the stone down on somebody else. It just ends up rolling down on them. So don't be the one rolling the stone. Don't be the one plotting someone else's demise. You just get in your lane, stay in your lane, say your prayers, read your Bible, make good choices, stay on point with God, and realize God has a purpose. Why are you in the mess that you're in? God has a purpose. Why are your family members as crazy as they are? God has a purpose. Why is this country as messed up as it is right now? God has a purpose. I really don't understand how people that don't believe in the providence of God uh, lay down and get up every day. If I didn't believe there was a God in charge of everything that had a purpose, all the craziness in this world would have driven me crazy a long time ago. But I don't have to worry about what I don't understand because I understand the big thing, and the big thing is God knows. So next time you start wondering why, just remind yourself God knows. Next time you start uh, doubting what's going on in your life, just remind yourself, I just have to stay on the Lord's side. I have to stay on the people of God's side and on the plan of God's side because when deliverance comes, I want to be on the side of deliverance. So you read the story. Esther does what Mordecai told her to do. It all works out good in the end, except for Haman. He, he, he gets what he's got coming to him. And all these things happened because God had a plan. Last verse I'm going to give you. We're going to get out of here early today. Romans 8, 28. This is the overarching teaching of the entire book of Esther. And we, as Christians studying the Bible here, we've learned that when the Bible says we, it's primarily talking to who? So this verse is for Christians. And we, 
Christians know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. This verse speaks to the providence of God. This verse speaks to the purpose and the plan of God. This verse, though, is often misunderstood and falsely taught in the kingdom. God is not working out everything for your good. That's not what the verse says. God is not working. Everything in your life is not going to turn out good for you or me because there's a lot of growth in adversity. There's a lot of lessons in hardship. See, 11 years ago when my wife died and left me with a 2-year-old and a 4-year-old, I still 11 years later don't see anything good that ever came of that. I don't. It, it created damage in me, created damage in my children, created damage in the ministry. It caused pain and hurt that, that some days is, is, is still unbearable. I can't say that that worked out for my good. But that's not what this verse says. We know all things work together for good. Who determines whether it's good or not? God. All, God says all things work together for good. See, what God knows is more than what we know. Do you believe that? God is wiser than we are. God has purpose for every process, and we will not always know it. This is why intellectuals can't really stay in the kingdom of God. This is why academics struggle so hard with faith, because they want to be able to figure everything out. But God hasn't called us to figure everything out. God wants us to faith things. If you can't figure it out, faith it out. When it doesn't make sense to you, be willing to say, I don't have to understand it to accept it. I don't have to agree with it to accept it. I don't have to say that's how I would do it to follow it. So the question for you today is, can you follow a plan that you don't understand? Can you follow a plan that's going to cost you some pain? Can you follow a plan that isn't the plan that you would draw up? For yourself, if you can, then you'll be part of that crowd that walks into deliverance. See, the Bible says all things work together for good to those who love God. It's not always for our good, but we're the people who love God, and God says it's, He's working it out for good. So many things have happened in my life that I don't understand. So many things have happened in my life that I thought shouldn't have happened. I wish hadn't happened, that I would have done a different way. But looking back on it now, there's no doubt in my mind that it was all part of God's plan. It was all part of my journey. And if you believe the Bible, you have to believe everything in your life that's ever happened to you was part of God's good plan for your life. Why? Why did Job have to lose all his children? Just got, it's part of God's plan for his life. Now, see, hyper-charismatics want to say, oh, no, God didn't do that. The devil did that. The devil. No, well, read the book. God told the devil to go do that to Job. God had a plan for Job that seems awkward and weird and strange and, and horrible and painful. But in the end, God knew what he was doing. And Job kept his eyes on the Lord the whole time, 
even through his pain, all the way through his process, to get to the place where he could see the providence of God working in his life. If you love God and you know he's called you to follow him, then you need to stop wondering why. You need to stop trying to figure everything out. You need to stop trying to determine how you can manipulate your situation to where you come out on top. And you just need to concentrate on the task at hand. The Bible says what your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Do today. Do today. Paul said in the New Testament that that was his key to victory in Christ. Not dwelling on the past and not trying to focus on the future, but living in the now. Very few people are actually living in the now. Most people are paralyzed by their past. Something you did that you can't forgive yourself for. You're never going to be able to live in the moment until you release yourself. Something someone did to you that you won't forgive them for. You're never going to be able to live in the moment until you release them. Fear of what the future holds paralyzes you from living your life today. Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray, he said, give us this day our daily bread. He was teaching them that the faith life is a one day at a time life. He was teaching them that it's a right now relationship with God that you need to concentrate on. Everything that's happened to you has only happened by the permission of God. Every bad thing that happened to Job, the devil had to get permission from God to do. God gave the permission and God set the parameter of what could and couldn't happen because the providence of God is overriding every situation in human history. Everything that's ever happened to you in your life was just part of your journey. It was positioning you for such a time as this. It was positioning you for the time when God is going to use you in the place you find yourself because you didn't give up along the way. Too many people quit. Too many people quit along the journey. Too many people fall out because they don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to them. It's not working out according to their schedule. They see others coming up, and they're not coming up, and they think that God has forgotten them or God's not moving in them or God's not working in you. The fact that you're still alive discredits that whole theory. The fact that you're still alive proves God has a reason for you being here. All things work together. The death of a loved one, does that work together for good? That's what it says. There are horrible events that happen. Tragedy, death, divorce, devastation, destruction, natural disasters. Do those things work together for good? That's what the Bible says. If you say, doesn't make sense to me, I agree. It doesn't make sense to me either. But I decided a long time ago that God didn't have to make sense to me for me to follow him. Because I realized that God is so much bigger than I am. He, he, he's so much greater than I am. My mind can't fully conceive everything about God anyway. So there's going to be a lot of stuff that's not going to make sense to us on a moment-by-moment basis. 
But if you get the big picture in mind, my heavenly father is in charge of all these events. He knows me. The Bible says that a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground except God knows it. The providence of God is involved. A leaf falls from a tree by God's design. And a bird falls out of the sky by God's design. Don't sit back and wonder why on every bad event in your life. I told you for years, don't get theology from fairy tales, nursery rhymes, and poetry. But there's some good teaching to be found in, in certain things. And Shakespeare said, ours is not to reason why. Ours is but to do or die. See, as children, we need to teach children that. And as adults, we need to remember that. I told you for years, my mother prepared me well for God's kingdom. Because she never told me why. Never. We weren't allowed to... If you said, but why, you got to look. If you asked why again, you got slapped. She wasn't going to tell you why. She knew why. She was the adult. She understood why she was telling us what she was telling us, and she was in charge. And that prepared me greatly for God's kingdom because I can truly say, mine is not to reason why. Mine is but to do or die. I don't have to understand everything that God is doing in my life to obey the things that I do understand. You see, it's a trick of the devil to try to get you thinking about what you don't understand so you won't concentrate on what you do understand because if you concentrate on what you do understand, then you'll start doing something for God that God could bless. And when you start doing something for God that God can bless, then you're going to start moving through your process at a faster rate. Some of you are slowing your progress down by complaining. Some of you are slowing your process down by quitting. Some of you are slowing your process down by not embracing God's providence as the overriding truth of every event in your life. But the Scripture plainly says all this stuff, every event, all things work together for good. I don't have to know how. I just have to determine, do I love God? Then I could say, it's part of his plan. I don't have to like it, but I have to walk in obedience. Each one of us have taken a different journey to be here today. We've come from different backgrounds, different walks of life, but we all ended up in the same church. Remember what Mordecai said to Esther. What if maybe God brought us all here together just for this very specific point in time to do something significant for God? Become part of the team. Become part of the people of God. Embrace the process of God and realize that every event in your life is impacted by the providence of God. He's provided in advance. He knew you'd be here. He knew we'd be here. He knew we'd move from our last building to this building. He knows all about your yesterdays, and he knows all about your tomorrows. 
leave those things with him, our mind is not big enough to concentrate on all those things at the same time. We need to concentrate on our today. Jesus said, take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought of the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. There's enough going on tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to handle its own business. We need to concentrate on today. So are you one of those who love God? Have you accepted his calling on your life to salvation? If you are, then lay down your question of why. Lay down your resentment. Lay down scratching your head and being angry at your situation. And tell yourself, Father knows best. My God knows, and I'm just going to follow him. My God knows, and I'm going to follow him. When I went to Fort Polk, Louisiana for primary leadership development course in the Army, they put us out in the middle of nowhere. They blindfolded us, humvee us out in the middle of the woods, 30 miles away from where we had to get back to. And they put us, they put us in four-man teams. And we were all different. We all had different job specialties. <laughs> but one of the guys that was on my four-man team, his job, was to read maps. And so we all had this map of how we, how we needed to go. And we could see, only thing we knew was by the sun, north, south, east, and west, and the one road they showed us as, as a point of recognition for the map. So we're like, okay, well, we got to go down this road and eventually work our way south. The Calvary Scout said, nah. That's going to take forever. That's, that's, a hard, that, that, that's going to be 30 miles of walking. He said, but look, you see that over there? That's this ridge line right here. That over there is this right here. If we go, we were back hours before everybody else got back. Why? Because the three of us laid down our brilliance and listened to the Calvary Scout. We followed the dude that knew where he was going. Now, if we would have argued with him... This dude reads maps for a living. That's his whole job. That's what he does. He navigates terrain. We listened to somebody who knew what they were doing. We didn't have to know. I didn't even know what he was talking about when he was pointing at ridge lines and all this stuff. I'm like, you say you know where you're going, dog? I have no clue, so I'll follow you. We have an opportunity to follow the man who knows the direction he's going. Follow God. He knows the path he's going to take you on. Don't argue about it on the way. Nobody had any opinion against that Calvary Scout. The whole walk back, we got in trouble because he cheated the system. We won. We didn't argue with him. We didn't say, I think we should go. No. It would have made our life harder if we had argued with the one who knew where we were going. And we wouldn't have got there on time. Some of you walking around in circles, spinning your wheels, getting nowhere. Because you're too busy arguing with God about the direction that he has laid out for your life. He's positioned you where you are for this point. 
He's positioned you where you are at each strategic event in your life so that you could accomplish his purpose for your life. I want you to embrace it and say, like the old hymn said, wherever he leads, I'll follow. Stop trying to figure everything out and stop, stop being mad. Stop resisting and start obeying. Mordecai told Esther, you don't come along with our plan, we'll all get delivered and you won't. Because he knew God had his back. Do you know God has your back? If you know God has your back, it doesn't matter what the day brings. You're on the winning team. If you know God has your back and you're going to end up in heaven, it doesn't matter what the journey takes you through to get there. As long as you get there. That's the big thing. Will you get to heaven? If you're here and you haven't answered God's call for salvation, you don't have to walk an aisle, pray a prayer with me. The Bible says if you'll call on the Lord, he will save you. If you're here and you're not saved, I want to invite you to ask God to save you, and he will do it. According to the scripture, God said if you confess your sins, he will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Get on God's path. Let him be the leader and don't have to ask. Most annoying question children ask on a road trip. What is it? Are we there yet? How are we there and I'm still driving? Every time my kids ask that, I'm thinking, how have I just raised idiots? I'm riding down this road 70 miles an hour. If we were there, would I still be riding down this road? Immature people want checkpoints. How much longer? How much longer till we get there? How many more miles till we get there? You knowing how many more miles till you get there is not going to get you there faster. You knowing what road you got to turn off on is not going to get you there faster. Buckle in for the ride and let God direct your steps. Pray with me. God, thank you for providence. Thank you for providing in advance for all our need. You provided a savior for us when we couldn't save ourselves. You provide a guide to live on the inside of us by your spirit to lead us and to guide us into all truth. God, I pray that you'd be our guide. Teach us what you'd have us to know. God, I pray for each person in the room today who's never been truly saved. I pray that you'd reveal that to them and give them a desire to call on your name. Thank you for blessing us with all spiritual blessings and giving us all we need for life and godliness. We choose your way, God. We say yes to your will. We say yes to your way. We believe you know better than we do. And wherever you lead, we'll follow God. We ask you to give us strength for our journey and grace for our race. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the AOCF Sound Doctrine Podcast. And visit us on the web at aocfnow.org. Your financial support for this ministry allows us to share the gospel around the world. Your support is greatly appreciated. If you would like to give a donation, please go to aocfnow.org. Abundant Life Christian Fellowship Church. Loving God, loving people.